This episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers, and their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc. VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 200 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guaranteed. So go check them out at linode.com slash freelancershow. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number 286 of The Freelancer Show. Today on our panel, we have Kai Davis. Hey, hey, hey. And Philip Morgan. Howdy. And I'm Reuven Lerner. And today we're going to be talking about overcoming objections that your clients might have regarding your experience. Um, so, Kai, this came from a question that you got. So why don't, why don't you kick off the, the question and we can jump into it. Absolutely. So the question came from a reader on my mailing list and really centers around proposing on projects where you don't have any direct experience in that particular project. And uh, uh, the reader phrased it to me as, hey, feedback usually comes up when I send off a proposal like, hey, it seems like you haven't done a project like this in the past. How can we trust your expertise? And so I think this is an interesting question to dive into because oftentimes as freelancers and consultants, we're proposing on projects that might be unique or similar to things we've done in the past but are a new take on it. And so that objection of, hey, you've never done anything exactly like this in the past is something that could come up at any level of experience. So uh, I think diving into the question and exploring different ways to overcome this objection would be valuable for the listeners and uh, uh, for ourselves just to talk through how we do it in our own business. Absolutely. Well, you know, the first thing that occurs to me when I hear this is, isn't every project different? Mm -hmm. Like every project is something new. And I seem to remember saying to clients years ago when I was doing more development that like I sort of want a, a project to have, let's say, half new things. Mm -hmm. um, but I know that they're going to be half new things, even on a project that is something that, that, that I'm really experienced with. So, I mean, do you guys, have you had this experience also where every project requires learning new things, understanding new procedures, understanding a new maybe business segment? Um, and, and so that's just like part of the game. If you were to do exactly what you do all the time, again and again, with no variation, you might be really experienced, but you probably wouldn't have too many clients. Mm -hmm. huh. uh, I mean, I, I've seen that in my own work like a, years ago. It, it, that was the thing I did to myself, though. Like I, I sought that out because it, it felt fun. It felt like that was the challenge. Uh, like that was what was going to prevent me from being bored was this, you know, incredible amount of diversity across projects. But, you know in a snarky way, a snarky way of expressing how I feel about that now would be to say, well, that's like a, you know, a Toyota factory building a few cars and then taking the assembly line and, you know, putting it in storage and then getting it back out of storage to build a few more cars. It's like, what's the point of doing all that relearning? Um, it just, I can't see how it contributes to value that you deliver to your client. I don't know. What do you, what about you, Kai? I'm curious if you've had that feeling of starting over in a substantial way. Is that a fair way to put it? Like kind of starting over each time? I, I think that is a fair way to put it. And it's definitely something I've experienced in my business. And I could point to honestly positioning, the start of implementing positioning as my in my business as me moving away from this. What I've often seen in my own business and in the businesses of people that I coach is that there is a fear that, hey, if I pick a single target market or expensive problem or just sort of scenario that I'm I specialize in solving, I'm going to get bored really fast. When the truth is, when you have that specificity, when you say, hey, this is what I do, will you eliminate the need to sort of relearn an industry, a target market, what the problem is, what the situation is, in broad strokes, you eliminate the need to 
learn these base principles for that industry or for this project and instead can focus on what's unique and interesting and new about this project and spend your time and attention learning those bits and then those bits stack onto the next project in that target market. But if we flash back to before when I was or before I was positioned, when I was a generalist, I very much experienced this sort of learning process on every single project. And the way I framed it to myself mentally was, well, part of what the client is doing is paying for me to learn how to solve this problem, which is often true on an hourly project or a completely new project. Hey, we don't know how to solve this, so we're going to dive in, figure it out, and then implement the solution. It works well, but it often leads to a lot of, well, let me figure out how to do this thing in this new industry or for this new target market or in this new scenario. What I've discovered through positioning and specialization is it makes it easier to say, well, hey, I've done things like this worth 90% like this 10 times before. I understand the steps that go into this. Did we totally misinterpret what you were saying, Ruben? I'm curious, like that 50% sort of this is... Um, an outlier or something I've never seen before. Was that at the level of the client's business or like, what, what, what are you, what, what, what do you mean, man? <laughs> so, um, so like when I was doing software, when I was doing like web applications, so, you know, it was, everyone was learning it as they went along because the, the web was young and so was I. And so we were, you know, no one really quite knew what we were doing. So, oh, we've got to do such and such with the database. Well, there's not really information about how to do that, so we'll just have to learn it. Um, there was less of a volume of information out there, so we just sort of had to create everything we could and come up with new solutions. I guess as time went on, more and more of this stuff was standardized. So I, I, th I think I'd be hard-pressed to think of you know, a non-huge VC-backed, cutting-edge project like web development project that would actually be 50% totally unknown and and unpackaged right like nowadays if i want to do i don't know some sort of text search for crying out loud you just download a library that does that and you're done mm -hmm. so oh, i, I see um, thing yeah so that what you were you're talking about kind of a, a space before that was very immature and i don't mean that like you know oh how immature of you to whatever i just mean not it didn't have the benefit of time for that stuff to kind of crystallize and formalize, right? Right. I mean, I guess I hadn't thought of it until until now, but so much was just not available and or needed to be developed from scratch by hand. And nowadays, so much of that you just download, like, you know, name your lang programming language, and you have probably a dozen libraries uh, under open source licenses. Um very uh, robust that you can just download and install. Like, I don't know, you want to do UPS tracking. If you spend more than an hour installing, you know, putting UPS tracking in your system, then you're probably doing something wrong because there's so many libraries that do that for you. So, so I think nowadays it would have to be a much lower number. That's true. Yeah, I see what you're saying. That's, that's one of the things that happens as markets uh, mature is that all that stuff that used to take really smart, creative, clever, like, I don't know, maybe genius level people to figure out it gets baked into stuff that any dingling can use. <laughs> and it, and naturally as a result, what happens to the value of those people that, you know, it reduces. Yeah. It becomes a commoditized service. I've seen that in a number of industries and a number of businesses I've worked in. I almost think of it as like a knowledge advantage. If you know how to do this, but it hasn't been commoditized or not a lot of other people know how to do it. There's this knowledge barrier. It allows you to charge more. It allows you to work on projects that other people can't. But as it becomes more commoditized, as it becomes easier for people to understand how to implement UPS tracking, how to do outreach, how to do anything we point to, how to create courses online, the, the barrier to entry is lower. The cost to do it becomes lower. More people enter the market and some of the advantages you might have as a consultant or freelancer in a particular market, they evaporate because, well, now it becomes commonplace knowledge how to do this thing. We install the library. We don't need a consultant who charges 300 an hour to implement this for us. We'll just have somebody handle it for us. That's right. At the same time, though, I mean, I've just been sort of thinking, searching in my mind through more recent things. So recently, obviously, I've been doing training mostly. And so most of that is very productized. Most of that is very standard. Like it, it's, it happens say once every few months. I mean, I'm mean, going to even guess like a handful of times a year, which I guess is the same thing 
where someone will say, we want a course that includes some topic that I've never taught before. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if it's a new client, they're going to say, okay, this is like, you know, 5%, 10% outside of what you've done a lot before. So they're willing to give me the benefit of the doubt on that extra stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if they ask me to do something, I, mean, I had, I guess one of my big clients with whom I work a lot asked me last year to do a totally new course, like a full day course on something I didn't know. Um, and I said, okay. And I really threw myself into it and truth be told it was terrible. <laughs> I thought it was good, but the reviews were <laughs> incredibly bad. So <laughs> they won't be doing that with me again, uh, even though they like the other stuff I do, I guess. And, um, but, but they only came to me because they said, okay, you know, Python and you know, teaching, and we're happy with you on that. So we're going to like take one piece out, which is the content and swap it with different content. And they were willing to, as I said, give me the benefit of the doubt on that. And I think that's probably likely to be a, a more successful model than going into something that you've never done anything before with, mm-hmm. right? Like, so, 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 you know, in response, like, I guess my initial response, or I guess my second response to this person who wrote in the note would be, if you're doing something that's so radically different than anything you've done before, you might have issues. You might have issues on delivery, let alone convincing them to have you do it. Maybe you should stick with something that has a larger degree of overlap with what you've done. So they will see it as incremental differences rather than radical differences. I think that's an excellent point. Oh, Philip, I don't want to cut you off. How dare you, Kai? Um, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> we punched in at about the same time. You know, there's like this is such a wonderfully nuanced issue that I'm like nodding my head along with what Ruben is saying that, you know, I call it leaning out on your skis, leaning ahead of your skis. Uh And that's a sports analogy, which is funny because I'm like the least sporty guy I know. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it's an analogy for your your downhill skiing. And there's this point where you do have to lean forward, like to to ski efficiently and to move the way – I know the people who actually know this stuff are like rolling their eyes, but they're screaming at their car stereos right now. (laughs) They're like, no, no, (laughs) Philip, you're missing this important nuance. And I'm like, you're right. Uh, This is, you know, I I shouldn't even be using this analogy, but basically you're kind of pushing the envelope. Mm -hmm. And I think that a certain amount of that is what you have to do. And like the, the place where most, developers anyway, choose to push the envelope is, oh, I'm going to increase my technical skill. I'm going to, you know, become a better developer in a sort of pure sense in terms of what I can do with, with this, uh, you know, this code that I'm writing. And I'm saying, okay, that's cool. Also think about doing that a little bit in terms of your, um, your insight into your client's business. Mm-hmm. And that's where people start to get scared and where what Reuven just said is particularly relevant, where you can't lean too far ahead of your skis because you can get yourself into trouble. You can overpromise. You can sign up to do things that you can't actually deliver on. Mm-hmm. So you can essentially break promises to clients or underperform, both of which feel terrible. And But yet, if you don't lean a little bit into the challenge of learning something new, then I think you will end up in that place where you're bored a lot more quickly than you realize. Mm -hmm. So it's this kind of fine balance. And I I understand what Ruben's saying. And I also realize that most freelancers get about 20 to 30 opportunities per year. Uh, This might even be on the high end. Kai, I'd love your take on this. Uh, since we both work with kind of small self-employed people a lot, but you get maybe 20 or 30 opportunities to decide, am I going to bite off a challenge that's slightly bigger than I'm used to here? Mm -hmm. And that's it. And that's actually not a lot of opportunities. It's not like you get that opportunity every day. You know, there's Mm -hmm. 300 and some days per year. Um, So I don't know. What do you think about all that stuff, Kai? No, I fully agree. I think there's a limited number of opportunities to sort of push your boundaries, lean ahead of the skis, as you said, in your business in a year. And each of those should be evaluated. There are opportunities for growth. I know a lot of the growth I've had over the last five to 10 years as an independent business owner has come from identifying these opportunities where like, I'm leaning a little forward and you know what? There's a chance I might fall on, to continue this skiing metaphor, having skied once in my life, there's a chance I might lean a little too far forward and fall and hey, you know what? That would suck a little bit, but 
unless I take that risk, unless I say, you know what, I'm going to try something a little new here. I'm going to try something that's a little outside of my comfort zone. We're never going to discover what it is that we're secretly good at, that we haven't discovered we could actually excel at. And so I'm a fan of leaning a little forward, taking these opportunities that are outside of our core competency or outside of our comfort zone in terms of projects and saying, hey, you know what? I've done some of this or I've done three projects before, each one that relates in some way to this client's project. Here's what that overlap looks like. Yeah, you know, there's some parts I'm not confident about or 100% confident about, but I feel overall like this is a project I could tackle or put forward a best faith, good faith effort in tackling. So I'm a fan of sort of leaning forward uh, while skiing, so to speak. I, you know, I wrote an article called Specializing with Little or No Relevant Proof, and I, I want to uh, describe a sort of concept I came up with for that article which I call the world's most demanding prospect. So we're talking about a prospective uh, client here, right? Uh, TWMDP, <laughs> what is the world's most demanding prospect want when they're talking to you, a prospective, uh, you know, resource or uh, vendor or whatever, you know, however you want to think about yourself, what do they want from you if they are the world's most demanding prospect? Identify seven things. Number one, can I, can I read this? I hope it's mm -hmm, okay. Mm -hmm. um, a track record of prior success doing almost exactly what you're going to do for them. You have a track record of doing that same thing at the same or larger scale. Number two, references. Number three, demonstrations of technical and project management depth and breadth. This is a little more, this is more likely something you'll face with bigger companies where they expect you to do most or all of the project management. Mm -hmm. In some cases, a deep bench or scalable capacity. That's the fourth thing. Fifth thing, internal consensus from other project stakeholders and their boss before hiring you. Number six, if you're not already a preferred vendor on their preferred vendor list or if you cost more than their rate card says they can pay you, then you need to have some unique value that's specific to the project at hand that allows them to make an exception to their process. And seven, cultural and process fit. So, you know, the thing from that list that we're talking about here is that first thing, a track record of prior success doing almost exactly for others what you are proposing to do for them. Mm -hmm. And Kai, that's where your question comes from is someone saying, I don't have that. Right. Um, what can I do? Like, if you just say, well, if the answer to that is, you know, you can't do anything, forget about it. Then what you're telling, what we're telling people, which I don't uh, agree or believe with this, but what we would be telling people is you're stuck. You can do the same things in the future that you've done in the past, but that's it. You can't do mm -hmm. something new. You can't build something new. You can't pioneer something new. Well, or or you can just move much more slowly. But that slowness might be so incremental as to be almost non-existent and frustrating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it would still be maybe largely a feeling of being kind of stuck. Like when you say move slowly and incrementally, what, what do you mean, Ruben? I mean that, um, okay, so... You know, I've done mobile games, right? So maybe I can help someone with mobile, like a different kind of mobile app that's graphical. And then maybe I can move, like do a little bit of the server stuff for the mobile thing. And then I can move more into, more, more into server applications, right? It'll probably take a handful of projects of each type until you move from being a mobile game developer to be a backend, you know, DevOps person, something like mm -hmm. that, which is pretty radical. But you can do it. You just got to do it in steps. Mm -hmm. And that might be frustrating. It might take too much time. And at each point, then you're really stretching yourself, right? You're leaning off over really, really hard over your skis. By the way, I, I love that analogy. Mm -hmm. Speaking of someone who's a terrible, terrible skier. Um, <laughs> yeah, that makes three of us. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so I, yeah. And, and but but I, I think better that than just saying you're stuck and better mm -hmm. that than never trying. Also, depending on what you do and who you are, you might just want to like, you know, give it a whirl every few clients. Like if someone comes around, you know, you can say, you know, what, I've got enough leads coming in. Let me give it a shot. Mm -hmm. right, I'll just I'll just. And the worst case is this client will not work out or will hate me or whatever it is. But that's okay because I've got enough leads coming in that I can afford to sort of burn this one. What I'd actually reframe the worst case in a slightly more positive frame, I'd say the worst case scenario is 
the client raises some objections, which is great. We want objections because it tells us where our marketing is falling down. If the client says, oh, well, hey, we don't see any case studies that talk about you doing this. We don't, there's no testimonials. There's no proof. We're looking for like these four elements. Uh, I think uh, Sean DeSouza's uh, Brain Audit is a wonderful resource that'll be in the show notes that talk about the different elements customers look for when they're going to buy. So it might be that you present this new service offering or present it in a proposal to a prospect. They have a number of objections. They say, hey, it doesn't look like you've done something exactly like this before. Well, okay, maybe you won't close this project, but if you want to close similar projects to this in the future, you now have a punch list of the specific things that prospects are looking for. They want to see a case study. They want to see a testimonial. They want to see a work sample. Okay, great. It might take you a few months of work to put these together, do a pro bono project for a friend in exchange for feedback or for a reduced price, Whatever it takes, you now have a list of the things to put in place. So the next time a prospect approaches you and says, hey, we'd love your help on a thing like this, have you done something like that before? You could say, yes, here's the case study, here's the testimonial, here's the work sample, and address the objections that you've identified before. It's definitely an iterative process where the second time you send out a proposal for this type of thing, you might get a new set of objections back. And so you iterate forward, improving your marketing, fixing any bugs that you identify through this process. But I think proposing on something that you haven't done before or that's a little uh, uh, ahead of what you've done before and having the client raise valid and reasonable objections helps you understand what to do in your business and what to fix in your marketing. Mm -hmm. Now I think back to when I started selling, when I first started selling search engine optimization services for e-commerce stores and Shopify stores, it was a very educational experience for me because I did not have a lot of content or social proof on my website showing, hey, I'm great at this thing. And so as I started having conversations with clients, as I started having conversations with prospects, I was able to take any objections they had, oh, you don't have this, or oh, we have questions about that, turn them into articles, turn them into emails. Uh, as I worked on projects, turn them into case studies. And sort of as an aside here, I recognized that as I made a migration to something that was new or outside of my core experience area, it's natural for the client to have some sense of risk around it. Oh, this is a bit different than what they've done before. Maybe instead of there being a 10% ch chance of the project failing, there's a 25% chance. So early on, I might reduce my prices so the buyer feels like, okay, yeah, there is a slightly increased chance of, thing go of things going haywire, but it's a lower overall cost. It feels less risky. We're willing to make this bet, so to speak. Let's go ahead and work on this project. And then that project at a lower price point becomes the first case study or work sample or testimonial that will help you get the second or the third or the fourth. Oftentimes I see objections like, hey, we don't see a lot of social proof here or we don't see you as having worked on similar projects before as signs that the client is interested, but looking for just reassurance that this isn't risky or isn't something completely outside of your comfort zone. So saying, oh yeah, you know what? I haven't worked on this exact project before, but here's three similar projects I've worked on, how they're similar and how they all add up to the necessary experience for this project in front of us. Yeah, I think there's an element of your sort of personal style or, or comfort with doing things that are risky. I mean, that really is, it is, you know, the risk to you, the risk to the client who, uh, you know, which of you is bearing most of the risk or how that risk is distributed, I think is, is a part of how people are going to make this decision Mm -hmm. You know, we're talking about this kind of at the theoretical level, which I think is fine, but you can't really divorce it from how you are contacting prospective clients, how they're becoming aware of you, mm -hmm. right? Like if you're, I, I'm thinking that kind of, you know, Reuven's perhaps, I'm not saying you're advocating for this, but Reuven is sort of uh, depicting a more incremental approach, right? Like, oh, we're going to go. 5% outside our comfort zone on this project or 2% or something that we would think of as a, a very low risk incremental growth. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to encourage people to think about, well, what's the most you could successfully pull off? Not that you would actually do that, but you know, sort of dream big, <laughs> right? Like what, what could you do in terms of developing new capabilities and expertise that would be, something more dramatic than, than a small incremental thing. But if you're depending on clients to find you, then I think you're almost going to be forced to be a little bit more incremental and a little bit more uh, slow and steady because 
I'm just not quite imagining how a client would, let's say, do a Google search or ask for a referral and land on a website that convinces them you can do something radically different than what you've done in the past. Mm-hmm. Although I have some ideas about that. Uh, I, I think that, you know, I probably have done a 180-degree flip-flop in the last two years, and I just see such a role for outbound marketing in specializing and you know, business development, because you're so much more in control. Mm-hmm. You're not saying, okay, you know, I, I'm happy to receive inquiries from whoever finds what I'm doing interesting, compelling, or whoever gets referred to me. You're actually saying, no, I actually want to go after something maybe that's different than what I've done in the past. And I just have trouble imagining how you could do that without employing outbound marketing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, as somebody who's a big advocate of outbound, I completely agree. When it comes to market research, when it comes to those initial conversations with people in a new target market or as you work on refining your positioning or your specialization, outbound really is key because it lets you identify prospects who match the people you want to speak with and then go out and talk with them. And you learn so much through that process. Yeah, it just I guess what I'm saying is... Um, you know, every, people should choose a growth model, like a career development model that's right for them. That's mm-hmm. something I I don't have m- as many strong opinions about. But if you choose a more aggressive or ambitious or um, foolhardy or risky, depending on how you want to think about it, uh, you know, growth model, then you're probably going to have to end up using outbound to achieve those goals for taking on something that's an ambitiously more challenging project than you've ever had before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Uh, uh, in the case where, where it is inbound, let's say we do have some inbound channels, somebody approaches us, says, hey, we'd love you to work on this thing. You put together a proposal and they're like, oh, we feel slightly less confident about you working on this thing. What would you recommend in those scenarios where it's inbound already versus an outbound lead you generated? Well, you know, this kind of ties into just the whole, let's say you're pursuing a, what you feel like is an aggre- uh, aggressive or ambitious uh, growth thing where you're like, okay, I've never worked with a Fortune 500 company, but this year I'm going to do that. Or, mm-hmm. you know, I've never worked with this technology, this year I'm going to do that. Or whatever it is. You feel like it's ambitious. I, I think there's um, there's an opportunity to make your own manufacture your own proof, mm-hmm. and I've had to invent some terminology to describe this because I just haven't come across anything that fits. So I talk about a- ambient proof. And by the way, proof is just some kind of evidence that your client feels like is convincing that the risk is not super high if they were to work with you. Mm-hmm. So. Ambient proof is like this person does not disappear. This person answers their emails. This person is nice to work with. This person is not a sociopath. This person is, um, you know, is is reasonably trustworthy and professional and conducts himself in the way that we expect professionals in their field to do to do that. Mm-hmm. And that's that's okay. That's good, but it doesn't. You know, again, circling back to how we started this episode. It doesn't convince this prospect that the work is going to be, uh, you know, high quality. The problem is going to be solved in an effective way. It just means you're you're not incompetent at conducting yourself as a person and a business owner. That's all that ambient proof means. And so, really, what you want is more specific proof that that serves as evidence that you're not going to uh, that that you are. You have the expertise to solve this problem. Mm -hmm. And I think for that, what you can do is say, okay, what would be, uh, so maybe I can't convince a client today to pay me to solve this new problem and therefore I'm lacking specific proof. So you can say, well, what would be convincing that I could do on my own time speculatively Meaning I have no idea if this is actually going to work, but what's my best guess as to what I could do that would be persuasive to this client that I'm a, a you know, a safe bet for this. Mm-hmm. And that could be something like I'm going to do a mock version of this project or I'm going to do it for free for anybody who will let me do it. Or um, 
I'm going to do some screencasts that demonstrate that I have the expertise necessary to solve this problem. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm getting kind of rambly here, but that's that's a sort a type of proof that I call constructed proof because you build it on your own time. It's mm-hmm. not a byproduct of getting hired to do something by a client and then you have a happy client and then you do a case study or get a testimonial or whatever. Like those are great. I'm not saying nothing wrong with those, but if those are out of your reach right now, I, I just want people to consider that there might be something they could do that is within their reach that has a similar function to that specific proof. For you, the listeners of Freelancer Show, Loot Crate is offering an opportunity to save 10% on any new subscription at lootcrate.com. Just enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Loot Crate is one of my favorite things. Every month I get a box in the mail, costs less than $20, and it comes with all kinds of goodies. I have stuff from just looking at my shelf, Batman, Spider-Man, Ninja Turtles, Back to the Future, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and much, much more. So if you're a geek, a gamer, anything like that, and you want cool stuff to put around your office, cool t-shirts, comic books, etc., then definitely check out Loot Crate. To save 10% on your new subscription, go to lootcrate.com slash ruby. Again, that's lootcrate.com slash ruby to save 10% on any new subscription. Enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. I, I strongly, strongly agree. I, th- this is an area where I think creating a, a, what I think of as like mock case studies, how I would explore this problem, how I would solve this problem, inventing a problem or taking one we see in the wild and constructing a case study. Uh, Dustin Curtis did this wonderfully with, I believe it was American Airlines uh, uh, boarding passes a number of years ago. I can't find the article, but if I can, we'll get it added to sh- show notes. But it's a great example of sort of speculative, not speculative, but work in public on an idea or a concept to demonstrate that you are capable or demonstrate your expertise. And I think you nailed it. Uh, uh, Creating mock case studies, creating screencasts, writing articles, writing a mini booklet on the topic can be a great way to say, well, hey, here's, you know, 5,000 words on how I solve this type of problem. If any client comes to you with an objection of, well, it doesn't seem like you have a lot of experience in this area or how could we trust your expertise, you could hand them the screencast, the articles, the mini booklet, whatever it may be, and say, well, here's additional proof. Here's additional uh, uh, representation of the knowledge I have and help move them forward and overcome that objection. I think that's a great way. And I love the idea of constructed proof in that sense. So I I have three thoughts about ways that maybe people can convince clients. And I'm curious to hear what you think about them. And I know I've heard people talk about these in the past. I don't think it's like just me coming up with it here. Um, So one would be to do um, a road mapping session. And I'm going to assume you guys agree that it's not a bad way. Like if they say, well, we don't know if like you'd be a good person. You say, well, let's do like a small project, a road mapping project. And then they, if all goes well, grow to trust you and then they're willing to take you on for the bigger projects. That's like idea one. Mm -hmm. Idea two is work for free or for a very low price in exchange for testimonial, assuming things go well. And option three, and this is more for software people is work on an open source project um, where obviously you won't get paid, but it gives you some, you know, fame, if not fortune and proof that you can work with other people. You know what you're doing. Assuming it's a large enough project. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious to hear what you what you think about those as ways to overcome maybe not immediate client like the client who says show me something now is not going to be convinced by any of this because mm-hmm. um, it'll take time. Philip, what are your thoughts? Oh man, I'm in the middle of eating a burrito. Let me get back to you in <laughs> sixty seconds did, on that. Did you bring it up for the audience? <laughs> I'll, I'll answer first. Uh, I'm a huge fan of road mapping projects in this scenario. I think they're a wonderful way to offer a lower risk option to the client that allows you and the client to explore the problem. They understand their situation and current problem. They understand what outcome they're looking for. You, dear freelancer slash consultant, as the consultant of the scenario, understand how to get them from where they are to where they want to be. And a road mapping project is a wonderful way to identify the different sources of risk that might affect the project, the different assumptions, and let you emerge from that road mapping project saying, hey, yeah, you know what? There was a lot of uncertainty. We identified 90% of it and we're able to resolve it. Or you know what? This does not seem like a project I'm going to be able to help on. It's great that we invested the smaller amount up front rather than going with a larger amount and discovering it wouldn't be a good fit down the line. So I think road mapping projects are excellent. 
Uh, the second suggestion, free or low price work. I am 99% of the time against doing free work, but this is the one exception really where you have mm -hmm. a new service where you want to develop some sort of case study or some sort of social proof around it identifying a contact, a colleague, a friend, someone in the industry, and doing either a free version of the project or a low price version of the project in exchange for their feedback, their notes, and a testimonial is a wonderful way to A, smoke test that you actually know how to do the thing. I'm going to do Facebook ads. Let me find my first test client. Okay, great. There are a lot of bumps along the way, but turns out now I know how to do Facebook ads even better, and I have a testimonial for it. Maybe you weren't paid what you typically want to be paid for that project, but now you have convincing social proof that you could actually do that project or do those types of projects. In response to the third one, open source work, I like that a lot, and I think it works very well for developers just to show, hey, I've tackled this type of thing before. I think we could even broaden it a little bit to say, working in public on projects similar to the type mm -hmm. of projects you want, that's really important. And I think that makes it apply to freelancers and consultants in general, rather than just developers on open source projects. I think working in public is incredibly valuable because it creates that track history of what you've done and what you're good at and what you're improving. Yeah, I also agree and want to throw a fourth option on the table, which I th is not it, it actually maybe the most difficult option. But what I've observed is that when it, when you ask the right kind of questions, and, and I'm talking about in the context of speaking with a prospect or you're in a sales conversation, <clears throat> when you the the freelancer ask the right kind of questions, it can build trust very quickly and mm -hmm. that's really what we're that's sort of the flip side of risk here is um is how much are you trusted by this prospective client to deliver on whatever is important with this you know this project that you don't quite have the proof that proves you've done it before mm -hmm. so you know this is a little more uh you know advanced stuff but just being uh courageous to ask difficult questions or knowing the questions that are, you know, coupled with getting the project right versus the questions that don't matter, mm -hmm. you know, sort of like um, user experience designers will say something to the effect of, um, you know, button color matters, but it's so not important compared to these other things. Have you thought about these other things mm -hmm. and what's your plan for, you know, whatever? <sighs> Like those kind of questions that sort of challenge your prospective client to think more deeply can rapidly build trust and they can be a substitute for this kind of direct uh, proof that we're saying you might be missing. Completely agreed. It's almost like there's, I want to use the phrase institutional knowledge here, but it's not correct, but like this knowledge of the problem or the topic space that you're able to demonstrate through your questioning or through your dialogue with the prospect or the client that demonstrates, oh, this person does know what they're talking about. They might not have the case studies. They might not have testimonials on their site, but when we have a conversation, they're asking the piercing questions that show they know exactly what needs to happen. I can think of a client I had in the past where it was a market research conversation in Portland, and I was asking him questions about his business. Do you do email marketing? Do you do Facebook advertising? What's your customer lifetime value? Uh, do you have people reorder from you often, multiple purchases? And it was a great conversation. Throughout the conversation, he was like, you know, that's a great question. I don't know. I haven't really looked into email marketing before. At the end of the conversation, I was like, thank you so much. This answered a ton of my questions. And he was like, how do I hire you? You have asked great questions here. I don't <sighs> know the answers to any of these. How do I pay you money? And it was very interesting for me because it really came exactly from what Philip just pointed out. By asking questions that demonstrated a depth of knowledge about the space or the problems he was experiencing, even though I hadn't worked exactly on a project like that before, I was able to demonstrate I had a deeper and more thorough level of understanding than the client did. And the client was like, okay, I need this person on my team. I want what we just discussed. Let's move forward. So I completely agree with you, Philip. I think that is a challenging channel, but a very valuable channel to use to build this rapport, build this trust with a prospect. You know, just a side note on that, a lot of us introverts are either secretly or overtly trying to enact an agenda of basically never having to talk to uh, people unless it's in a very comfortable way. 
And the sales conversation for a lot of us is, is the most uncomfortable context we can be in at least Mm -hmm. early on in our freelancing career. And so we can sort of be seduced by this idea that, oh, we can just automate all that stuff that gets us from, yeah, I don't know if this prospect is a good fit or not to the point where you you're certain they are. Mm -hmm. But I think if you do that, you will, uh, lose out on the opportunity to have these kind of conversations where you can get better at the stuff we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, seeking the objection like, okay, so you guys seem a little hesitant. Can you tell me a little bit more like why you're feeling that way? Right. Like being able to ask that question and not be afraid of the answer can be so uh, powerful for, you know, f- figuring out what's weak about your business and making it not weak. Mm-hmm. Same thing with, um, you know, this opportunity to ask those penetrating questions. You can do that in a form, I guess, but it's much more powerful when you do it in a real-time voice conversation. Mm-hmm. So I just can't help but, I mean, that's one of my pet peeves is I feel like people automate stuff too early mm-hmm. because we love, we love the message that, that automation sends about us, that we're, impor- we're important and busy enough that we have to automate this stuff. Mm-hmm. But if you're not actually that important and busy then I think it deprives you of something that's very valuable for your business. There, there's a directive I had, and I think I have to credit you for this one, conversation before automation, before personalization. And it's something yeah. that, oh, oh it's, it's good. so valuable in my own business. Since I realized like everything I do should be focused right now on having more conversations with people on my email list or my customers or my clients or my prospects. And a tiny bit, say 80-20, 20% should be spent on automating some parts of it. If I discover, oh, if I send an email at this time, it stimulates a conversation. Well, great. I discover that through doing it the hard way, the manual way, but now I could automate it and then focus on, okay, I'm starting these conversations. How do I start more conversations? How do I engage more deeply and more thoroughly? I think focusing on conversation first and foremost, it's so valuable because as a consultant, as a freelancer, you need to be having conversations with prospects, with clients, with people in your industry. You can't just automate it all away. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we're so, I think I might have referenced this. I'm sure I've referenced this a few times in the past, um, but I remember listening to Startups for the Rest of Us when Rob was starting up Drip and he would talk about, oh, I've got this new startup. But I don't want people to register themselves and do it manual, uh, do it automatically because I want to understand their problems and talk to them. Mm-hmm. I thought to myself, that's nuts, <laughs> right? Like the whole point of a SaaS product is that it's hands off. Mm-hmm. But he, as you know, anyone who knows about him or him knows, um, he actually did exactly the right thing because he was in touch with his clients. He was having these interactions. He was having these conversations. He really got to know what was making them happy and what was making them upset. So that when it finally did become automated, you said, oh, this is exactly what I want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think there's so many valuable takeaways there. Having conversations with prospects or clients or customers, anybody who's just paid you money, is incredibly valuable. One change I made in my business in late 2017 was setting it so anytime somebody pays me for a service, it directs them to a combination onboarding thank you survey page where it's like, hey, thank you so much. I'll be in touch with more information. Can you tell me more about why you decided to purchase this service or product? And not everybody fills it out, but of the people that do, they give great insight into what was happening in their mind right at the moment when they click the buy button, what objections they had, what uh, dreams they had, and just collecting that information, learning from my clients and customers allows me to better refine that sales experience, my marketing, my messaging, the entire flow to better appeal to my best buyers, to better demonstrate that I have the experience they're looking for, the capabilities they're looking for, and can help them accomplish what they're looking to accomplish. Uh, Can I conduct a quick poll of the room here? So uh, raise your hand or say something if you have made a dramatic change to your business that was the kind of you know like dramatic aggressive taking on some new challenge thing that we were talking about earlier um I'll, i'm raising my hand here what, what about you guys yes strong hand raise can, can you can you ask the question again <laughs> sorry <laughs> if we made <laughs> yeah, a, sure. if we made a dramatic change if you have at some point in your business, made a dramatic 
change for you dramatic doesn't matter what anybody else thinks of it but for you you're like eh, i don't know this seems a little risky not sure i can pull this off that that level of uh change to your business um i guess i mean yeah i guess uh, a few years ago when yeah i mean a few years ago when i decided i was going to go away from this training company and do it on my own right that was uh scary although looking back my wife was right i had no reason to be scared but i was scared right but that was pretty right. dramatic yeah. So what, uh, I mean, you kind of gave us a little flavor of what that was like, and I, I want to come back to you, Kai, if that's okay, and mm-hmm, hear mm-hmm. from you what your, you know, big, bold change was. But Reuven, what, what made that, what made it scary and what made it work? I guess are my two follow-up questions. So it was scary because I was convinced that if I do this wrong, I'm going to be out of work. Okay. Right. Like here I was dependent on these people for a lot of my income. And if I tick them off and no one sort of follows me, then, uh oh, bad news. And, and my wife kept saying to me, this is not going to happen. <laughs> she was like, like, stop being this way. Worst case is, okay, you won't have them, but you'll have other clients and you have calls coming in. Like she sort of gave me the reality check. And then when I did it and work came in, right, then the, of course, I told you so and you should have done this years ago. And I said, <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> but but there was this constant fear. Look, I've been in this game for a long time, and yet I still haven't completely gotten over the worry about where is the next client going to come from. Right. What, what, if, what, if this of, one, what if this inquiry is the last one ever? <laughs> that's right. That's right. And and so um, and and so I was worried. Like and and then like not only what if this is the last one ever, but what if I have now taken the active step of making sure this is the last one ever, then I'm really sunk. That's called sealing your own fate, right? <laughs> yes. Yes, precisely. So what, what made it work? Uh, I mean, it uh, sounds like your wife's support was, was vital. What, what else sort of made it work? So I did it kind of incrementally. Um, so I actually talked to one client, and I said, look, I'm planning to make this change. If I make this change, like, are you with me? And they Uh said, oh, yeah, absolutely. So that meant that, like, I wasn't going to be hungry on the streets, right? I had at least one client, and that was enough for starters. I also made sure to line up enough work in advance. So, like, I mean, in training, one of the things, as you know from me talking about it, is I love the fact that I can schedule things months ahead. So I basically said, okay, eight months from now, or six months from now, I'm going to leave these guys and I'm going to go on my own. But I'm going to first make sure that I have six months of work in the bag so that even if they get really angry, like it's not in their interest to dump all the work that I like that I was supposed to do. Right. They're, they're, they're not going to call companies and say, well, Reuben is leaving us in six months. And so we're canceling the, the training he was supposed to do between now and then. Right. That would just be silly. Right. So I was sort of betting on their own self-interest to, um, you know, for that to happen. And, and that's exactly what happened, basically, that I had enough work lined up in advance. And I said, like, I, I made it sound very generous on my part. You know, um, like, I'm going to be leaving you, but that just means I'm not going to take out new work. I'm obviously committed to doing all the things that we'd agreed to do before. <laughs> and so, um, so I basically got, like, the slow slide into doing it on my own. Um, which meant then that um, I could, you know, over time people would come to me. And that's exactly what happened over that period. Um, people called me and, um, you know, I started uh, doing more and more stuff on my own as opposed to through them. That's awesome. So I'm hearing you <clears throat> articulate this very prudent risk mitigation strategy. It felt risky. It was even, you know, emotional on the emotional level, kind of frightening. But you, you put in place really prudent ways to, uh, you know, minimize the risk. That's very cool. I'm curious. What about you, Kai? I'd say uh, there's been a couple shifts like that in my business. One that I could point to is the shift from focusing on Shopify and e-commerce store owners and blogger outreach or product review outreach to switching, let's call it modalities of outreach, to do podcast outreach for bootstrap business owners and freelancers, consultants, and agency owners. That was definitely a bit of a transition different target market, similar specialization, but a different implementation of it. And it felt risky doing it. What I 
the reason I made the change was I noticed that it was a more wallet out market that was eager to hire me to do that type of work. And it was work I was interested and excited to do. So the migration, it felt right. It felt like the nice natural evolution, but I share the similar risk that we all did. Hey, what if, you know, this is the last client that comes knocking? What if I'm not able to make this fly? So I adopted a very similar risk mitigation strategy to Reuven where I had both businesses running in parallel. I waited on the podcast outreach until I had a first client lined up for that. And then I started marketing and promoting the business more actively. I pulled back on marketing and promoting my e-commerce and blogger outreach business, but kept all my projects and my clients running there. And as I saw traction start to happen, and this is over a six to 12 month period, as I saw traction start to happen with the podcast outreach, I lowered even further the marketing I did for the e-commerce business and said, hey, you know what? I'm focusing over here on podcast outreach. And so it really was a year transition between the two businesses, but it let me slowly ramp up the marketing, test to see if this is a service I actually enjoy offering, and then say, okay, the market test worked, the actual doing the thing test worked. Let me pour some more fuel on this marketing engine, get a few more clients in, grow this new line of business. And so by having it happen over a longer period of time, by saying, I'm going to continue marketing myself with my existing business and working with my long-term clients there while I spin up this new business, I didn't have as many worries around, well, what happens if this is the singular project that comes my way? I know I had a fallback plan, the existing business over here. And so if the podcast outreach did not work out, I could say, okay, great. The e-commerce business was working. Let me spin up the marketing again over there and double down on that again. So it really was a process of making a calculated bet, testing, seeing how the market responded to it, and then moving further into it. If the market was like, no, nah, we don't want to buy that, I would have pulled back and said, okay, good experiment. I learned something from it. Let me focus on the business that I could see having traction right now. Wonderful. Yeah, I, I just feel, because yeah, I'm very often advocating that people lean pretty far out ahead on their skis because I think that that's a very productive place to be. The, the fear of doing it, if, if you don't succumb to a sort of anxious fear, becomes a fuel for rapidly developing expertise. It's like having, yes. um, it's having a, uh, you know, an exam deadline a week out and you, you feel underprepared. Well, you know how you're going to spend your week. It gives focus to that time. So, uh, I'm an advocate of that, but I also, uh, feel obligated to, you know, remind people that this is not just a sort of leap in the net will appear philosophy. It's a, you know, you, you, there are things you can do to mitigate this risk so it doesn't put you out of business or send you back to the full-time workforce if it doesn't work out. I've had calls with uh, some of my coaching students where on the first call we might be talking about uh, positioning. And I can think of one conversation in particular where they said, okay, I've read a lot about positioning from a lot of different people. Uh, so when I pick a new positioning, should I immediately fire all my old clients and just, you know, burn the boats. This is my new positioning ride or die. And I'm like, do not do that. Keep your existing <laughs> clients. They are paying you money. Do not say no to the money. Keep that money coming and slowly build up the new positioning over here. Get that first new client over here and then sort of transition between the two businesses. You know, when I was in um, Stockholm uh, a number of months ago, I guess it was eight months ago already, at uh, Brennan's W Freelancing Conference. So Rob Walling, here we go. I mentioned him a, a second time in the podcast. Um, so he gave a talk about how he moved from consulting to products. And he said his goal was to move to products, but he did it over time. And he basically, the way the term he used was to buy back his time. Yes. So if he was, you know, if, so if he was earning, let's say, you know, a thousand dollars a day, just to make it round numbers, then if he could get a product that brought in, you know, $4,000 a month, then he could take a day off from consulting and just work on the products. And so he, over time, sort of chipped away at his consulting until he was only doing products. And interestingly, he had a variety of products that he was working on and that were bringing in money. It wasn't just one. Mm -hmm. And so you can apply that same strategy then to switching your business, right? You're working in X, you want to work in Y. So you carve out time and you say, okay, I'm going to sort of work on this on Y little by little until it buys back my time from X. Yeah, yeah. You could even say, let's say for a typical or a typical freelancer or consultant, they have five clients they work with at any given time, just to pull a number out. We could apply the strategy here and say, okay, as soon as one of those clients parts ways or you fire them or the project ends, 
Okay, great. That's now one of your five client slots you could devote to this new positioning. And now you're focused on filling that client slot with somebody from this new target market or this new business. And once you fill that first slot, wait until another slot opens up and now fill it with somebody who also is in that new line of business. And over time, you're absolutely right. You're buying back your time from one business to invest it in another or another set of clients. I think that's a wonderful, wonderful way to put it. Yeah, that's a great way to frame that. You basically, I mean, a, a sort of more harsh way to frame it is you have to earn the 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 right or the ability to do this new stuff. And, you know, the way you do it is not, um, you know, firing all the old clients. Man, that would be, boy, that would uh, put me in bed for two days. I think if I, if I, if I thought that's how it had to be done. Whew. Yeah, it's definitely not the optimum strategy. And I can understand where people who are uh, uh, evaluating positioning for the first time and saying like, okay, I'm going to do a concentrated effort of positioning. All my clients don't match the positioning or only one of them matches the positioning I want to have. Should I just fire the rest and sort of clean the house to only focus on this one target market? I think we always have clients who don't exactly fit our positioning in some way. If it's a project you enjoy working on or it's a client, a legacy client that you enjoy working with, there's no real harm in keeping them around. Eventually, you might want to part ways with them because they aren't an exact match for your business as it grows. But in the immediacy of transitioning your positioning to a new area or focusing on specialization, there's definitely not a need to let all your past clients go. Yeah, I'm going to probably get the number a bit wrong, but Blair Ends has uh, frequently cites this number for what is a healthy amount of turnover in your client base. He's speaking primarily to, um, you know, midsize and large. Well, maybe large is not quite right, but, um, you know, midsize digital marketing agencies. And those businesses, I think the number is about 20% of their clients per year will uh, leave. Mm-hmm. And so I forget the number, again, I don't have the numbers exactly on the tip of my tongue, but 20% you're correct. In, I don't know, something like, 14 months or whatever, that means you're going to churn through all your clients or you'll have completely replaced all your clients in, a, let's say, a year and a half, something like that. So if you think about that kind of time frame, I mean, you can if you want. I mean, if you want and you work at it and you have a little bit of luck on your side, completely reinvent your business in that time frame. Mm-hmm. I apologize. Apologies to Blair for murdering the numbers there, but it just kind of gives some some time perspective to what we're talking about in terms of these changes that you might make. I, th- I think it's interesting the 20% number comes up here because Alan Weiss often speaks about how you should be parting with 20% of your clients each year. And so it's interesting to see that number echoed here. And I think that's a healthy number to target. Like there should be some turnover. There should be some churn. There should be some parting ways with clients over the course of a year, because otherwise there's no real way to add new clients to your business unless you're hiring more people to work for you. And that's a completely different episode topic. I'll, I'll just say that I'm sort of stuck in that position now and it's like a good stuck, but mm-hmm. like several, I have, I've, I mean, I do training for these big companies and big companies have big appetites and lots of people to train and they like to schedule things far in advance. So I've like scheduled so much with them that especially in the last two weeks, I don't know what's going on, but like, I keep getting calls from clients and I'm like, um, well, I can talk to you about six months from now, eight months from now when I probably have a slot. And that's a great way to turn off people from calling again. So, mm-hmm. uh, I mean like, so it's a good problem to have short to medium term, but I definitely need to sort of either get rid of some clients or just get rid of their time. Even if I have, the clients and restrict how much I can give them so that new clients can come in because mm-hmm. I, I do want those new clients to come in. I don't want to be able to work with them. Now I, I hear you and agree with you. One of the things I have off, I've been thinking about a lot recently is effective ways to identify those clients that take up more of your time. Uh, Amy Hoy, I think calls them time vampires and figuring out ways to part ways with them. Like a lot of the times when we talk about growing business, it's, Hey, we want to increase revenue by X percent, 30%, let's say, But there might also be a side of the coin where it's, hey, if you could let one client go, have 80% of your current income, but only do 60% of the work, wouldn't that be a nice future to live in as well? So I think you're absolutely right. Identifying the clients that take up a lot of your time and attention and prevent you from growing your business or working on new projects or taking on new clients, that's a very valuable step to take. But let's go... uh, uh, 
to picks and wrap up this episode. Philip, uh, any picks that you'd like to share with the uh, listeners? Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Kai, thank you for asking. I do have some picks I'd like to share. I'm going to link to that article that I referenced, which is called Specializing Even If You Have Little or No Relevant Proof. I think that'll give folks some ideas um, to kind of build on what we've talked about here. And then um, that's my first pick. My second pick is a podcast that I love, listening uh, done by folks that I respect and appreciate. Um, David C. Baker and uh, Blair Ends have a podcast they do called Two Bobs. It's a joke that folk fans of that movie Office Space might get. I didn't get it until they pointed it out. But even though I'm a fan of the movie, kind of an obscure reference to um, these management consultants that come in towards the end of that movie. Anyway, uh, Two Bobs, it's the numeral two, B-O-B-S is the name of the podcast. And I think I can drop a link to that also in the show notes. Um, just a wonderful podcast from two experts who routinely advise the, uh, you know, lots of businesses in the creative spaces in the creative, uh, you know, um, services space is what I'm trying to say. And um, check it out. That's it. Looks Those like, are my picks for this week. Looks like a beautiful one. I'm going to have to listen to this. Ruben, how about yourself? Uh, any picks for the week? What do I have in terms of picks? So I'll do, I got two fun picks. Well, fun for me. We'll see what other people think. So one of them is, um, so, so back when I was in college, um, the psychology professor said, well, you know, um, there, there are a few different kinds of attitudes towards life that you can have, right? One of them is the, the Kirk mentality. One of them is the Spock mentality. One of them is the guy in the red shirt mentality. And you can imagine this was like an, an auditorium at MIT. Everyone starts laughing, except for this one guy sitting next to me who's like, what's so funny? What happens to the guy in the red shirt? And everyone <laughs> has to yell at him, he always dies, he always dies. Um, anyway, so so as a, a good, uh, uh, you know, deep, deep nerd, um, I was uh, pleased to try the new Star Trek uh, series, Star Trek Discovery, and um, I held on through the episodes that have been shown through uh, our recording, which is almost at the end of the season. And I feel like it's been great and fun. So those of you who either haven't seen it or were skeptical about it, I definitely think it's worth it. And if you're horrified by what you see in the first few episodes, they actually do know what they're doing, it would seem. And hold on, because um, like it, it, it is rewarded toward the end. So that's, uh, that's fun pick number one. Fun pick number two is as... Uh, Listeners to the podcast know my hobby slash obsession is learning Chinese. And if anyone out there is doing that too, I have to recommend this fantastic book series called Mandarin Companion. Um, I realize this is applying to an extremely small subset of our listeners, but boy, these are great books. These are like most language learning stories are incredibly dull and stupid. Um, right. So you learn about the person who goes to the post office and the person who goes to the soccer game, the person who goes to pick up their kid from school. And it's boring. Like you, you fall asleep reading the story. And so what these guys at Man and Companion did was they took classic out of copyright English language literature and they translated into easy Chinese. So and as someone who reads almost only nonfiction, now I've gotten to read some fiction as well. So I just read Great Expectations in easy Chinese. I read uh, some Sherlock Holmes in easy Chinese. I'm reading The Prince and the Pauper now. So um, definitely way more fun to read that sort of literature in a foreign language. And it's a great way to show off when you're like, you know, sitting at a bus stop, reading a book in Chinese, people look at you like, and say, Oh, wow. So just for the, the sort of 
showing off to people value. It's worth something too. That's anyway, those awesome. are my picks for this week. Uh, Kai, what you got? I got two picks this week. Uh, the first is a book uh, by Oliver Berkman, The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. Uh, it's it's actually a really, really good self-help book, talking about happiness, how we view happiness, uh, touching on uh, uh, Buddhism, Taoism, a bunch of different philosophies and ways of thinking and putting it all together and saying, well, what exactly do we mean by happiness? What do we need to do to achieve happiness or move towards it? And is it something we can achieve and how do we do it? Highly, highly, highly recommended. Uh, link will be in show notes. Uh, my other pick is actually an office chair. I just moved to Las Vegas and uh, all of my possessions are in a pod somewhere in America <laughs> this is right the now. only thing you own, Kai. <laughs> this is the, oh, this in a desk and a computer. It's uh, the Marcus chair from Ikea. And uh, the review I read of it said, it's a wonderful chair. It's a sub $200 office chair that feels great. It looks a little wonky. And it does look a little wonky, but I'm sitting in it right now and I can tell you it is very, very comfortable. It's more comfortable than the $400 office chair I typically use as being shipped to me right now. So if you have an Ikea near you and you're looking for a reasonably priced office chair, strong recommendation for the Marcus chair. Uh, you'll find the link in show notes. It's super, super comfortable. It was super easy to assemble and it's a really, really good office chair. <laughs> easy to assemble uh famous yeah. last words of ikea furniture <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, uh, earlier when we were talking about uh uh doing work uh, uh repetitive times or doing it for the first time i just thought about the stack of ikea furniture i've been assembling and like the first time i put together a chair i'm like okay so i managed to put everything on backwards and upside down how did i do that the third time i assembled that chair i'm like it took me five minutes it was easy so Great, great example from Kai's life of the value in doing something again and again. You discover the bugs. You discover the things that don't really make sense. And when you're putting together a lot of IKEA chairs, you discover the things that do not make sense. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Well, thanks, Kai. Thanks, Philip. And uh, thanks to all of you for listening. And we'll be back next week on The Freelancer Show. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.